Before we start the show, I want to tell you about Serve HQ. Every church leader knows that having trained and engaged volunteers is essential to successfully accomplishing your mission. But if you're like most leaders, you know how tricky it can be to onboard and equip people for your team. What if there was a resource that made it easier? Well, I'd love to tell you about ServeHQ. ServeHQ is simple video training courses that help you equip volunteers and develop leaders. You can create your own training or use their video library. You can even automate next steps to onboard new people quicker. Check it out at servehq.church and the link is in the show notes. That's servehq.church. What I cannot live with is not knowing your presence in the furnace. So I need to know that you are in the fire with me because I really only have one thing. And, and if I'm not sure it's you that I'm walking with, then I don't know how to live. I don't know how to be. I, I feel like I, I don't know where I'm even, I don't know the ground I'm standing on. And so what I felt that I discovered going through that journey prayerfully was that I have found the treasure hidden in the field and the pearl of great price. And I've sold everything um, to take hold of this one thing. And it is to know him and walk with him for the rest of my life. Well, hello, my friends. Welcome to Word Made Digital. I'm your host, Joanna LaFleur. This is season nine, episode four. Today, our guest is Tyler Staten. He's the pastor of Bridgetown Church in Portland. And you may know his uh, predecessor, that was John Mark Comer's church previously. So now Tyler is the senior leader there. So thank you so much to our sponsors for making this whole conversation possible. You're going to love the conversation with Tyler. Thank you to Serve HQ. They train your ministry volunteers, leaders and new members online fast and easy. Also, Compassion Canada, they're lifting children out of poverty in Jesus' name. And Scripture Untangled, a new podcast by the Canadian Bible Society. There's links to all this down in the show notes. So we don't want to make, you don't want to make it too hard for you to find them. We want to make it as easy as you can to go and check out these sponsors. Please support them because they support you being able to listen to this. So let me tell you a little bit about Tyler before we dive into the conversation. Tyler is the lead pastor of Bridgetown Church in Portland, Oregon, and the national director of 24-7 Prayer USA. He's passionate about pursuing prayer, communion, and conversation with God, as he calls it, while living deeply, poetically, wildly, and freely in the honest and gritty realities of day-to-day life. He believes that justice is kinship, stories are a gift, and prayer is an invitation. We're going to be talking to Tyler about his most recent book and the topics around it. It's called Praying Like Monks, Living Like Fools. So please enjoy this conversation with Tyler. Tyler Staten, welcome to Word Made Digital. I'm so glad to have you on the podcast. Yeah, thank you, Joanna. I'm grateful to be here. Um, you uh, have kind of entered a new role in the last year or so in the midst of like what feels like a whole new world in terms of a post-COVID, uh, if that's such a thing, like reality. So maybe let's just start there. Can you introduce yourself of where you're at now? And we may meander backwards a little bit. Sure. Yes, I'm, I'm the lead pastor of Bridgetown Church in Portland, Oregon. And uh, took over for my good friend John Mark Comer just 
almost exactly a year ago now. Um, that was a, a code discernment process that he and I entered into uh, in the early days of COVID, and it came with a huge amount of grief as I said goodbye mm-hmm. to the to the church I had planted, the community that I thought I'd like raise my family and watch my kids grow up alongside close friends. That was in uh, New York City. Um, but it felt like the Spirit's invitation. Mm-hmm. And upon arrival here in Portland, we've just had the time of our lives. And wow. uh, Bridgetown has been so welcoming, so healthy as a church community. And so it's been a real gift to kind of get to to ride a wave already with this community. And uh, I'm excited to see what the next year holds. Well, what is the difference, would you say? I'm thinking about um, sometimes here in Toronto, where I live, we're compared to New York in terms of big city, diversity, um, expensive to live, food from everywhere in the world at two in the morning, you know, all that kind of stuff. But what's what's that difference when you're seeing in terms of specifically church culture or not even just church culture, but culture around thinking about religion, faith in the community, Portland versus New York? Are they the same? Are they quite different? Uh, you know, there's, I would say there's more similar than different across the American church context. Um, but there's definite differences. So what would be similar is, um, it is not common to follow Jesus at all in either place. And therefore the people that I get to lead, uh, are not casual churchgoers who prefer my sermons to the guy down the street or something like that. They're resilient Christ followers who are really on a spiritual journey with Jesus. Um, and that's a gift. Um, the difference, uh, the differences are, you know, Portland is a much smaller city with the kind of the same, uh, rates of secularism versus, uh, some type of Christian expression. Uh, and, but, but what would be different is New York is wildly diverse. And so there's, there's people of every persuasion. And Portland is wildly secular, but there's mostly one type of person. And I might get in trouble for saying that because there isn't just one type of person. You know, there's immigrant communities spread all throughout different corners of the city. There are different ideologies here. There's, but there's definitely a dominant ideology in the city of Portland in a way there wasn't in the city of New York, where you just had this mishmash of ideologies. And so it felt very much like you were in the minority to be following Jesus. But anyone I met on any given day might be thinking any host of things about the meaning of life and why they're here and what's going on. Whereas in Portland, there is a, you know, uh, I would say like a hyper-liberal, hyper-secular approach to ideology and understanding of life, what leads to human flourishing, what is worth pursuing, and what is worth combating. Just a very deconstructionist understanding. Um, And so that informs who I'm speaking to uh, each Sunday, and it informs who my neighbors are and the the other folks I'm getting to know, dropping my kids off at school and that kind of thing. Yeah. Well, you're using terms like resiliency, um, 
you know, you, you, there were some other words that you used as you just described what these people are like, um, you know, the vibrancy, the resiliency. Um, I think one of the critiques, especially of millennials was always, has always been like, they're not resilient. Like they reach an obstacle, something gets hard and you just cave, you know, like life's mm -hmm. hard. I tried one thing. It didn't work. It's over. I'm not, mm -hmm. you know, not resilient to like stand back up and try again. Um, and we've seen that a lot in, in church with the last few years of um, a lot of people for lots of different reasons, leaving church and not coming back. Um, are you seeing that in Portland or because it was already maybe less trendy, fashionable, cultural to go to church, are you seeing maybe less of a change in that? Or, um, and, and then maybe the follow-up to that is like, what, it, what are the marks of like the resilience that you're seeing? Like what is allowing people to stay? Yeah. You know, I think, I can't really answer that question in Portland versus New York because I left New York prior to the regathering process. Yeah. Like when yeah. The church I was leading when I left, we were doing like something like 30 people a Sunday, every seat six feet apart from the seats next to the, you know, that we were in that stage of the pandemic still very much. And then we did the regathering thing here in Portland, which was a wild experiment because Bridgetown had purchased a building right before right. the pandemic hit. So we're regathering in a new building uh, with an imposter leading the church. <laughs> which is, <laughs> And most of the people of the church, uh, I encountered me on live stream before I ever encountered them in person. So that's a strange way to get to know people um, and felt like we didn't know how it would go. But Bridgetown regathered re in a very healthy way. And mm. the numerically the church is about the same size as it was before and but that actually has everything to do with the fact that the church was built very strongly on communities that were which is what we call like small groups but our yeah. our structure of communities meeting in homes every week around a table to not just discuss sermons but to practice put into practice the way of Jesus um, and so Bridgetown was able to continue to meet throughout the pandemic through the communities and not just do a live stream and hope someone's listening, but do a live stream and then know people are gathering together in homes to work this stuff out. And that was really the, the saving grace of this church through the pandemic is Bridgetown of no doing of my own was built to go through a time like what we went through. And so I would say anecdotally from getting to know other pastors in the city, Bridgetown has regathered much more similar to who she was before the pandemic than the average church in Portland has because of the really good work that was done by John Mark and the team here prior to me ever showing up. Yeah. And, you know, not that uh, you're you're not out the other side. You're right, sort of in the middle still of this transition of leadership. I'm sure it's sort of a few year process to sort that out. But I'm I'm curious about like what you know, as as there's many people who whether they feel like whether they're in a new church or they feel like they're in a new church because everything about the church they had prior to COVID has has changed so much. Uh, you know, what, what would you say to, to others who were kind of navigating the same world as you, you know, um, as, you know, just a form of wisdom or encouragement for them who are trying to transition a church? Man, there's, there's so much. I feel like 
we were so intentional about it and we <laughs> prayed a lot. I, I think the best things I could offer um, are, are these two things. Number one, just pray a lot because, you know, I think that we're, we're often guilty within the church of relying too much on ourselves, our expertise, our leadership, and not enough just on the spirit of God to guide people's hearts. You can do everything right, but you can't control what people are going to think, how people are going to react to someone new, how attached people are in places you can't see to a particular leader or anything. You know, God has to speak to people. Um, so asking God to, asking Jesus to be the head of the church is, uh, I would say, is number one. Then number two, John Mark and I both just reflected a ton on um, the who is Paul, who is Apollos passage in 1 Corinthians, um, where Paul is essentially saying, some of you are caught up in following this leader. Others of you are caught up in following this leader. Don't you understand that this thing isn't about leaders? Um, and he goes on to, to talk about how Christ is building the living temple. And so I, I just think to reflect often as Christian leaders on the fact that Jesus' great passion is his church. And so the story of the leadership transition at Bridgetown Church is not about John Mark Comer and it's certainly not about Tyler Staten. It's about the people of Bridgetown Church and the character that God is forming in those people here and the spiritual fruitfulness that he has prepared from before the creation of the world for those people to carry out in this city at this time. And John Mark got to lovingly lead that church for a while, and now I'm getting to lovingly lead this church for a while. But the call that's on my life and that's on his is suffering love. Like the, the call to pastor of people is to suffer in love on behalf of those people for as long as Jesus lets you. So I, I just think the more that you can humble yourself and realize this actually isn't a story about me, the more space God has to lead his people and shepherd his community. And then, yeah, there's a whole lot of really intentional things that we did to protect our friendship through all of this, to lead Bridgetown with wisdom, to invite the council of many into the process. So there's all kinds of leadership best practices that you should undertake. Yeah. But those two things have to live at the very tip of the spear. Well, and you know, how appropriate, because we're here to talk about your book, Praying Like Monks, Living Like Fools. I mean, it's clear that prayer is, is not an add-on. It's not the you know, the upsize on the extra value menu. It's like the main course for you, um, in your life, in your leadership. Um, so this book, were you, where in your life were you when you were writing it? Were you in New York? Was this a book? Cause I know like the timelines of writing are, mm -hmm. are different than the releasing of, of writing. Yes. And, and so, uh, where were you when you wrote this? And, um, is there any like appendix you want to add now <laughs> at this moment, you know, at this moment of fall 2022? Yeah, you know, the, in the introduction to the book, I kind of share that I'm writing the book in late 2020, sitting in my tiny cramped Brooklyn apartment in the evenings um, where I have a family of four living in less than a thousand square feet and they've closed every playground in the city and we basically can't go outside. Yeah. Um, and that's where I wrote the book from. 
And there was two reasons for that. One is because I, I began, I didn't know 100%, but I began to feel pretty certain that my family was going to be moving to Portland. Mm -hmm. And this was such a massive part of my life in New York city. And the 12 years I got to live there, it's the longest I've ever lived anywhere. It's what feels like my hometown. And then secondly, um, it was such a massive part of the community that I led that it felt like I need to put this on paper while I'm in this city among these people. That's important to me. Um, so that's where I wrote the first draft of the book. Um, and then I wrote the second draft, the one that is probably much more coherent and got into people's hands uh, in the first couple months that I landed here in Portland. So it was actually written in both cities. Um, but I observed a, a, something was fascinating me during the pandemic about prayer in those early stages, which is that there was, you know, at the same time that people, as you've already noted, began like stopped attending church during the pandemic and chose not to come back in historic numbers for the Christian church. There was also the, the number of Google searches for prayer uh, increased by eight times with every wow. so many diagnoses. So there was also this, it seemed at the same time, there was this broader culture turning to God, as many within the church were running from God. People who never thought to look to the church were suddenly looking to the church, thinking, do these nut jobs actually have a thing or two that might help me survive? Um, and then many who had, I think, probably with some boredom, sat in pews for years, just decided, ah, I'm, I'm out. And so that was fascinating to me that the church was running from prayer while the world was running to prayer. Pausing the conversation with Tyler, because just like prayer, the Bible itself can feel overwhelming, confusing, or hard to believe. Scripture Untangled is a new podcast by the Canadian Bible Society to bring you interviews with culture leaders, leaders in ministry, and Bible thinkers to help you be inspired to dive into the Bible and understand it. Listen for free and subscribe to Scripture Untangled on your preferred podcast app. The link will be down in the show notes. Yeah, I I think that's really interesting, like very timely. Um, and I think even the reliance on others to lead your life, lead your spiritual life, I mean, mm -hmm. uh, you know, you show up on a Sunday, you do the thing versus like having some spiritual disciplines, having practices in your own life of things like prayer, <laughs> uh, becoming so much more prominent if people can't get together. Mm -hmm. um, so so yeah, it seems like really like an interesting kind of book for the moment. But I think some of the biggest questions I have coming into this conversation about prayer always hits back for me to like, like, why is it so hard? <laughs> like, it's supposed to be this amazing, th it's, it, you know, it feels like, um, you know, it's oversold and under delivered. Mm -hmm. uh, it's not an easy part for a lot of Christians in their spiritual life. Mm -hmm. why, why do you think that is? I, I think it's because prayer is uh, spiritual practice at its most relational. And so I think it would be the, the, the answer to that question is the exact same answer to why is marriage so hard? You know, I, right. this, huh. I'm supposed to want this. I, I do want this from some deep place my whole life to covenant and intimacy to someone else and to share the whole of my person with them and them with me. 
And then you get in, the further you get into that, the more work it requires. And at the same time, what, what for so much of your life is difficult is the most rewarding part of your life in the end. You know, I, I've never heard yeah. of someone on their deathbed saying, I wish I had been less faithful to my spouse. You know, it just wasn't worth it as it turns out. And, and so I think um, fidelity is just hard and, and is uh, a slog in many ways. So I think it's prayer, prayer is spiritual practice at its most relational. And that means it is, mm. it is where you will discover the greatest intimacy with God. It is where you will weep with him and laugh with him and experience just laughter and joy at the spiritual fruit and outpouring of what he's doing. It's, it is the highest experience of spiritual power and spiritual intimacy. And it is the place, it will be the place of greatest pain in your spiritual life. It will be where you feel most disappointed by God, where you feel most overpromised and underdelivered on, where you feel most disillusioned. Um, and therefore, I think the journey of prayer is like a proceed with caution journey because it is where the rubber meets the road in your spirituality in so many ways. So, I mean, then the next obvious question is like, talk, talk to us about monks. It's interesting that you're using a metaphor about marriage because at least in, in not all, but in a lot of traditions about monks, like these are not married people <laughs> mm-hmm. or maybe they're married to God, you could say, but yeah. in, in some ways they have that vow. But um, I know nuns talk about like a marriage to God, but t- what is it about monks? What have you discovered? T- t- teach us something about monks. I mean, I, I think basically what I was trying to convey in the title is that I think the future of the church is charismatic and contemplative. And I think mm. prayer is charismatic and contemplative. And, and so we have these rich monastic traditions throughout church history that much in the stream of, you know, the mainstream modern evangelical church movement in the West, uh, of which I am a child, um, kind of doesn't look back further than like the last 200 years. And there's different monastic traditions that have served the church throughout history by essentially creating a deep end in the swimming pool. So I've heard it said many times that the church is like a swimming pool. All the noise comes from the shallow end. And that would be my pastoral experience that (laughs) that you, you get the most noise from people that are only ankles deep in the water. And the monastic tradition at every turn in in history has always been a minority of the church. And and there's never been a push that like, let's get all of the church to become uh, a Franciscan or a Benedictine or whatever it may be. So I think that it was always people that knew like we're, we're living at the radical edge of what it means to follow Jesus in this time and place. And yet what they did was they, created a deep end in the pool where there was some noise coming from the deep end. And essentially monks have been people throughout history who could say, come on in, the water's fine. Um, Discover what we've discovered by forsaking uh, so much that is neutral in this world that we might go after the one thing. And the gift of that to the church 
is that we then get to draw from what's been discovered in these traditions and in their lives. So that's typically known as the contemplative tradition. It doesn't just mean uh, like sitting in silence before God, though that is one version of contemplative prayer, but it, it means a, a rich and broad toolbox of prayer practices, of ways of conversing with God. And then I'm, I'm equally a, a charismatic. You know, I, I believe that prayer is more than just what God does in me, but it actually is the most powerful force in the world. I think when I talk to God, he, I really am his child that he loves to give good gifts to. Mm. And that in some way that is mysterious and not mathematical, and I can't even entirely explain to you that God bends history in the response to the little, mostly ignorant mumblings of someone like me. And, and so I think that prayer is both of those things. It is uh, faith at its most unabandoned and foolish, and it is faith at its most thoughtful uh, and contemplative. And in the book, I, I try to draw from just a breadth of uh, ecumenical diversity throughout history, going back to the book of Acts uh, all the way up until now, which I think is needed. You know, there's uh, I think one of the reasons that so many people are underwhelmed with their prayer lives is because they've only ever learned one method. Mm-hmm. And, and so it's like, you know, I, to me, prayer is just listing requests to God, or to me, prayer is just, uh, you know, screaming and begging God to do the thing I think he should be doing or something like that. And if we can draw from these various traditions, we can learn a balanced diet of prayer, where prayer goes from like, I only ever knew that there was this one taste to this world of flavor and ways of communicating with God. And, and so practically for you, like, what does that look like? Like, is there, because I think a lot of it's this theory. And I think the reason we're for a lot of people, they, they, their prayer life just kind of sucks, uh, is because they don't, they just, they've never really been taught. It hasn't been modeled. You see like a prayer at dinner, you see like a prayer before bed, maybe with, with little kids, you see like prayers on Sundays at church, but but like a mod, because prayer is often like a solitude, um, it can't obviously, obviously we do it in groups as well, but there's so much of it that's alone. People aren't teaching it very often. What is like, so Tyler, what is like your prayer? Whether that's, do you have like a daily time? Do you have like a journal? Do you walk in a forest? Do you speak out loud? Do you just put on worship music and cry? Like what is it, what is it kind of your most typical rhythm of prayer? Sort of as you talk, talk about the fidelity, like that regular faithfulness. Uh, yeah. I just love if you can be as practical, like, as practical as possible. Like I have a favorite pen. <laughs> mm-hmm. Sure, I do all of the things you just said, but uh-huh. but this would be like the order of my. I, I want to order my days by communion with Jesus. So everyone everyone marks the passage of time some way, right? Like it's by work demands or alerts on my phone or the next meal time or getting through the rest of the week to the weekend every or having a vacation to look forward to. Everyone marks the passage of time somehow. I want communion with Jesus to mark the passage of time for me because I think it is the thing I'm doing that lasts forever. Mm. There's I, I know almost nothing about heaven, but I know this about heaven, that it is forever communion with God after the mission is accomplished. 
So in heaven, there will not be justice or injustice to right. There will not be lost the lost to go and find. There will not be there will be relational intimacy with God, uh, unbroken and forever. And so I want that to mark the passage of time in my numbered days on the earth. So that's a preamble to here's what that practically looks like for me. Uh, I get up early in the morning at the same time every day. And I sit on my front porch with a cup of coffee in my hand. And I turn on a timer on my phone for 10 minutes. Huh. I close my eyes and I open my hands in front of me on my lap. And I pray what's called a breath prayer, um, which is just a single phrase that you can pray in one exhale. That's kind of a just brings your imagination back to a true north. So it could be, you know, come Lord Jesus or, you know, it can be a million things for me. It's just Holy Spirit. So I just went as my mind wanders. Holy Spirit. And I just kind of return and and. That practice, um, a lot of people confuse contemplative prayer or listening prayer with waiting for God to tell you something. So it's like it's the purpose is revelation, right? I'm waiting on revelation. And that sometimes happens. But the purpose of that this style of prayer is actually consent. It is a way of posturing my body to say, the truth is, I don't know what I most deeply need. And the Spirit's deepest work within me, I don't even have language for. I'm being transformed from the inside out by the living presence of Jesus through the Holy Spirit. And before I do anything else today, I just want to open my body and say, Lord, would you form me from the inside out today? And I consent to your work within me. That's what listening prayer is. So I'm giving God the first word, essentially. Then uh, I read the scripture. I, I read a psalm and another passage of scripture. I do a little bit of journaling. It helps me to write down the things that I feel God's speaking to me about through the word. And then I take a walk in the park across the street from my house, and I have the same little loop that I walk every morning. And uh, the first words out of my mouth in prayer are always, Jesus, today in your word, I hear you talking to me about and so my, my prayer is just a response to what I feel like God's speaking to me about through the word. And then the, the way I end that time is always through praying the Lord's Prayer thematically. So as I'm coming back on that loop, I'm saying, our, my, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. And then I pause and I praise God for whatever comes to my mind to praise God for today. So for this morning, it happened to be like the first crisp morning of the year. And I was like, oh, I forgot how much I love fall. Thank you for the the sun shining and the temperature being a little bit lower and mm. feeling like, like that crisp feeling, the smell in the air. I love that you invented seasons, God. Like you're so creative and it's beautiful. And so, you know, just whatever's on my mind to praise. And then your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And I ask for his kingdom to come in me, in my family, in the community that I lead, in the city that I live in, just anything and everything that comes to my mind is a place where his kingdom of love and peace lacks. I ask for it to come. And I move through it thematically like that. Then uh, I live by a daily prayer rhythm throughout the day where I pray. That's the morning time. I stop at midday uh, at 1 p.m. the same time every day. We actually practice this as a staff here at Bridgetown. And we pray for the lost. 
So we just pray for friends and family in our lives outside of relationship with Jesus. And we ask the Father to draw them to himself. We ask uh, that we would have the heart of the good shepherd, that God would deepen compassion for those who don't know him in our own hearts. And we ask that he would employ us in answer to our own prayers. (laughs) Send us out, uh, call us to risk. Um, And then in the evening, so I cycle to and from work every day. In the evening, I spend my bike ride home uh, praying gratitude back to God. I do this ancient practice called praying the examine, which is just to review your day with God and to acknowledge where I knew his presence most closely, where I felt furthest from him or missed his presence most greatly that day. And then just to pray one thing for the next day, or because I do it in the evening, not at night, I pray one thing for that evening as I'm returning home to be with my family. Um, and then I also, I have two little pictures. This is the last thing I'll say. I have one right by where I make coffee in the morning with a prayer I've journaled framed. And it's a prayer for the morning because, um, it's a psychological fact that whatever you give your attention to first in the day shapes your emotional world more than anything else that day. Mm-hmm. So I think the first thing I so give like my- not TikTok. <laughs> yeah. So, so the first thing I do is I don't look at my phone. I don't, I don't think, what is, what do I have on my work calendar today? Who texted me in the night while I was asleep? You know, I yeah. look at this picture. I read a prayer that I've written for the morning and I pray those words every morning. And I have one right by my bedside, which just says this, this really simple prayer. Thank you, Father, for this day. Uh, be in my dreams and speak to me as I sleep. Amen. And because I want my first and last thought of the day to belong to him. So that's it. That's how I order my days. That's how I pray. Um, And that came about through a whole lot of stumbling and fumbling and trial and error. And it still comes out of me in a much less perfect version than I just articulated it. But some messy version of that is how I live my every day and how I pray. Pausing the conversation with Tyler to talk about transformation. It can feel like a bit of a buzzword these days, but what does transformation really look like? Well, one of the places that I think it's so evident, and I've seen it for myself, is in the stories of former Compassion-sponsored kids. That is, the graduates or alumni of Compassion programs who are now adults and telling their stories of how sponsorship impacted them. Like Eric, who grew up in the program in Uganda, Compassion became a part of Eric's life right when his family most needed it. It's because his father passed away suddenly and his father was the only breadwinner. And then others in the family, the extended family, took all of their money. They had nothing left. In Eric's own words, he said, you consider yourself a nobody and you have nothing. And then you receive news that someone is coming. This was a life-changing story altogether, is what he says. So the evidence of his sponsor Dorothy's impact on his life is amazing and they're actually still in touch today. You can sponsor a child and have this kind of transformational impact. I do it. I would love for you to join me. You can find Eric's full story. You can learn about other kids like him who have graduated and now are adults coming out the other side of the program. Go to compassion.ca slash if only. The link will be down in the show notes. Compassion.ca slash if only. Now back to the conversation with Tyler. And so... It's a big question, but as you go through this process, and certainly as it's been more of a discipline, uh, a rhythm in your life, uh, who is 
God to you? Or what have you discovered about who God is in some new ways? I mean, maybe from like when, you you know, you can go as broad as you want from when you were a kid to now, or like, you know, just in the last couple of years, um, you know, what are some things you're discovering about who God is as you pray um, with this level of rhythm, consistency? Um, yeah. What have you discovered? You know, that question could be answered so many different ways because I feel like I've discovered deep in friendship with Jesus. I think I've never, I've discovered greater depths to just how much God is fathering me and growing me up um, and how much he's in the details of my life. I think I've discovered so much about how accessible God's been made to me through the Spirit and how powerful God is through prayer and how much I leave on the table because I'm a modern Westerner who runs to productivity and tends to believe in productivity more than prayer. But the, I would say a profound revelation that's come through this recently is um, my, my youngest son, Amos, who's seven months old now, he was born with the most severe heart condition an infant can be diagnosed within the womb and potentially survive. Um, and, and we knew that when my wife was three months pregnant. So then we had six months of pregnancy with, you know, more complications being discovered and, and there being like very real uncertainty of whether we knew he would be born alive, but whether he would, live for a couple of days or a couple of years or a couple of decades or a full and healthy life like our other kids. There was just like every possibility was on the table and they would not know until he was born and they performed multiple open heart surgeries on him. So as that was coming closer and closer, the day, his due date, um, I, I felt like God was speaking to me about it. It obviously, his life was what I was praying about probably more than anything else. And I can remember reaching a point where I felt, I felt like God was speaking to me about it and almost giving me insight as to what would happen. And I was kind of saying to him, don't talk to me about this because I can deal with taking a risk because I think I'm having a prompting of the spirit and it is becoming a hilariously awkward moment. And I can deal with taking risks as a pastoral leader and seeing incredible fruitfulness on the other side or seeing a massive flop. But I can't deal with thinking my son's going to be okay and then watching him die. So if if I'm wrong about your voice here, what does that mean for the whole decades of relationship I think we've built? So just please don't talk to me about this. And that I never said that out loud, but that was the posture of my heart. And I began to get, gain language for it the more I prayed about Amos. And then I began to really identify then with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in a way that I never had where I I remember specifically walking that loop in the park and there being this one morning where I said to the Lord, you know, God, if, if 
my son has his life taken from him in just a, a few days or a few hours, and I don't ever get to know him and watch him grow up. That would be devastating, but I could live with that as long as I know you're in the fire with me. What I cannot live with is not knowing your presence in the furnace. So I need to know that you are in the fire with me because I really only have one thing. Mm. And, and if I'm not sure it's you that I'm walking with, then I don't know how to live. I don't know how to be. I, I feel like I, I don't know where I'm even, I don't know the ground I'm standing on. And so what I felt that I discovered going through that journey prayerfully was that I have found the treasure hidden in the field and the pearl of great price. And I've sold everything um, to take hold of this one thing. And it is to know him and walk with him for the rest of my life. And I can walk whatever days are given to me and whatever they hold as long as he is with me. And he always has been, and he was through that, and he will continue to be. But I think that would have been a story Jesus told that I enjoy, if not for prayer. But prayer made it a story that I've lived, um, and a story that I'll continue to live, and a story that lives in me. So when I read scripture, it's hard for me to read that story and not fall apart with emotion because I know that story. It's, it is my story now. And that's what prayer does, is it takes the spiritual life off the pages of Scripture and out of the mouths of other people and it puts it in my life. And I get wow. to embody it and live it and become it. Wow. Tyler, I, I didn't know that story. So uh, thank you for sharing that. I think that's going to mm -hmm. resonate with a lot of people who are listening to this conversation um, whatever people are going through, you know, that this idea of like the fourth, fourth man in the fire, yeah. uh, that, that he is, if he is with us, we can do it. And if he's not, I have nothing. Mm -hmm. Um, it's the only thing, mm -hmm. um, you know, just as, as we come to a close, I would hate to miss an opportunity to ask you around the digital piece mm -hmm. of our lives when it comes to prayer. So even, you know, with, you, you lead 24 seven prayer in the U S I'm familiar with it in Canada. It's around the world. Um, I, I mean, there's some digital tools. Like how do you, how do you think about maybe, do you have something that you would feel hopeful about in the digital world of what pr can be done with prayer and maybe a caution for people about digital tools, digital addictions and how that affects our prayer life? Yeah, absolutely. So my, like this is going to be absolutely shameless as a plug, but you asked me how I pray that daily prayer rhythm of morning, midday, evening prayer. I'm I've written the content for a new app being released through 24 seven prayer called inner room that we're, we're recording this in early September. It's going to be released in less than a month. So probably by the time this is posted, people. Yeah. I was hoping it. you would talk about it. <laughs> yeah. So, so there's, there's tools, and, and I've even gotten to, to do the writing for a tool that I think will help people pray. So I would say 
I am biased because it's my family, but I think that the tools that 24-7's put into the world through the Inner Room app I just mentioned, through Lectio 365, through the prayer course, they're the best tools that are out there digitally that, that help us to pray. And these are amazing tools that by which we can access uh, practices of prayer that previously might have taken... It's like, okay, cool, there's a rich toolbox of monastic tradition to draw from. So then I guess I'll go to the library and like read several textbooks on monasticism and hope for a yeah. nugget or two that I can yeah, like, apply. What, what I don't think is, most people have time for that. <laughs> yeah, so 24-7's taken the practice of Lectio Divina that's traced back to the desert fathers and mothers and took people going into the desert and living alone with no possessions to discover ways of communing with God through word and prayer. And then they they're practicing it in a way that you can immediately embody and take on. And it's the same with this daily prayer rhythm, which is how the early church lived for the first 300 years, that period that we're always trying to get back to and romanticizing. They were living this way. So why don't we start praying like they were praying? So it basically takes, I think, uh, makes accessible to the lay person or to the average person what previously was only accessible to the scholar or the monk. Um, and that's the gift of digital tools. I think the threat is something what I was mentioning before. I would just say, if you are not um, more conscious about what you're taking in digitally than you are about other mediums, then you're fooling yourself. Uh, it's kind of like someone drinking alcohol the same way someone would drink water and just say, hey, those aren't the same thing. Um, yeah, I like that metaphor. It's not that one is bad and one is good. They're, they're both good. But one is meant to be enjoyed in moderation and the other is meant to be guzzled. So you just know which one is in your bottle and then use it appropriately. Yeah. So I, uh, I have my phone on a sleep schedule. I put it in another room when I sleep. I do not look at it until... I have finished the morning prayer rhythm and have gone off to work. I turn my phone off when I get home in the evening until my children are asleep. And I do all those things, not because I struggle with digital addiction. I actually don't. I don't know why I'm grateful, but I'm not one of those people that looks at my phone a lot. I don't experience moments and think, I should put this on Instagram. I bet everyone I know wants to know, you know? We want to know, Tyler. I'm also not trying to mock that. I just mean whatever that thing is. Yeah, yeah. And some people, I've got a lot of things wrong with me. That just that thing isn't an impulse for me. Um, but it's because I know that this thing I'm holding is playing with fire. I know the psychological data about how much it shapes my mind. And so, if I want to have a mind that's shaped by Jesus, if I want to have the mind of Christ in the language of Scripture then I have to know how to use technology in moderation um, because it is being given to me without moderation. Um, Maybe a closing thought would be this. Like if you study the monastic traditions throughout history, almost every different tradition throughout church history would say an essential spiritual discipline is to spend an hour a day in prayer. And depending on who you are, that can either seem totally absurd or obvious but but that that's like the general counsel the the iphone now delivers stats on screen time to you (laughs) um and i would just ask like 
how many people are spending less than an hour a day looking at their screen? And if, and if your screen time exceeds your prayer time, what might that do to you played out over the course of three or four decades? And are you being thoughtful about that? And if you're not, I would just suggest you become thoughtful about that because we all want to become a certain kind of person. But the way that you live today is what's actually shaping you into the kind of person you're going to be. Um, so make sure that, it, that the way you're living today is in line with who you want to become. And your phone or your media or technology is definitely a part of that. Uh, Tyler, if people want to read this book, um, if they want to find you or they want to find Praying Like Monks, Living Like Fools, they want to find your teaching, your writing, your your uh, pastoral words, where, where do you want to send people on the internet today? Uh, I've got a personal website, tylerstaten.com, that links you to my teaching at Bridgetown Church. You can link through there. It links you to the to this book and the other one that I've written through, you know, every various retailer that you might want to get it from. So if you want a one-stop shop, it would just be there, tylerstaten.com. Awesome. Thank you so much for, um, for your work, like for the effort you've done here to summarize this for the rest of us in this book, um, for how you're modeling it, um, you know, and how you're really living, um, your life in front of so many other people, maybe in some ways kind of unexpectedly. So thank you so much um, to you for, you know, your faithfulness in this way um, as a gift to the rest of us. Yeah. Thank you for saying that. It's been wonderful chatting with you, Joanna. Thanks for having me on. Thanks. Tyler, thank you so much for joining the podcast and offering us this really interesting insight about prayer. Next week on the podcast, we have my friend Danielle Strickland. We're talking about her latest book, On the Other Side of Hope. So if you need some hope, if you feel discouraged about what you're seeing in church, what you're seeing in news today, you definitely want to make sure you listen to next week's episode. Thank you so much to our sponsors. Compassion Canada is back, lifting children from poverty in Jesus' name. The new podcast, Scripture Untangled, and Serve HQ. Train your ministry volunteers, leaders, and new members online fast and easy with Serve HQ. You can find links to all of our sponsors. We would love for you to support them. You can find them down in the show notes. We'll see you on our YouTube channel. If you haven't subscribed yet, we've got tutorials. We've got a back catalog of podcasts. We've got all kinds of resources that are free for you, free for your team. We don't want you to miss them. So you got to hit that subscribe button. All right. See you next week with Danielle Strickland.